This episode of the Pellicle podcast is sponsored by Hand and Heart. Hand and Heart is a business and workplace consultancy. We educate people, we solve problems, we guide growth, and we nurture teams. We believe the workplace will transform over the next five years. We have experience with businesses of every shape, size, and industry. We've worked with over 80 businesses in the last five years, and we've educated over 250 owners and employees using our business ecosystem model. By keeping things digital, we keep it affordable, and we are available worldwide on your time. We're giving Pellicle listeners a free 30-minute advice session. You could be a business owner wondering what the hell DE&I means, or you're at a loss of how to even start your business or develop systems to improve your business. We can help you. To sign up, head to www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle and register. That's www.handandheart.eu forward slash pellicle to book your free session. Thank you for listening. Now enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis. First and foremost, I want to apologise for the lack of episodes recently. I've been very busy and it's been difficult to find the time to sit in the edit and produce these episodes for you. I especially want to apologise to our long-time listeners who've been waiting ages for an episode. I appreciate you sticking around. And if this is your first episode, welcome. Do go back and listen through the archives. There's some really good episodes there for you. In today's episode, I've got an interview with a dear friend of mine, Chris Schooley, who, along with a guy called Steve Clark, founded in 2013 a craft malt house in the city of Fort Collins, Colorado, called Troubadour Maltings. Now, the interview is just over an hour long, and For the sake of brevity, this time around, I'm going to skip the usual preamble, the usual check-in and dive straight into the interview because for the next episode I've got prepped, it's a shorter interview and that'll give me plenty of time to ruminate on what's been happening in beer as well as tell you about all the nice beer and pubs I've been enjoying recently. But for now, we're going to dive straight into this interview with Chris. If you have a copy of my book, modern British beer, you'll notice in the acknowledgements at the front that I say a special thank you to Chris for connecting me to the agriculture of beer. And if you've seen me on my book tour, you will probably have seen me repeat the line, beer is not just something that's brewed, it's something that's grown in the ground. It's a line from the book itself. And it's Chris who made me realise this. When we think of beer and brewing, we think of manufacture. Beer making, beer production, brewing is food production. It's made in a factory in big stainless steel vessels. It's about machinery and hard work in these environments. But beer's journey is much more complex and interesting than that alone. Beer starts at the farm. Hops and barley come from the ground. And today we're going to focus on what is the beer ingredient that fascinates me the most, barley. 
the core of beer, the soul of beer, as it's been described to me by some maltsters. So I was introduced to Chris by my dad, Frank, in 2013, and they had met. My dad lives in the city of Fort Collins, Colorado. He's retired there. He's been there for over a decade. For me, it's a home from home. And he was desperate to introduce Chris to me because him and Steve were starting this malt house, Troubadour Malt. And the company my dad used to work for, Limagrain, had helped them find a barley variety because in the US, a lot of the big barley varieties that the big corporate maltsters use have intellectual property that prevents small farmers and then businesses like Troubadour from using them. So he gave them access to a barley variety called LCS Genie. And that's what they use to make the bulk of their malt. Malt that is not called Vienna or Caramalt or Pilsner Malt. They give them lovely names like Pevich or Blue Ballad. It comes from this troubadour theme, this musical theme, and is more reflective of the flavour and expression of these grains. In fact, if you think about it, it's a bit like what the hop industry has done. We talk about that in the interview. Hops have done very well at marketing themselves with names that express flavour and provenance. And barley, while it does have romanticised varieties, especially British heritage varieties like Golden Promise and Marisotta, it's not talked about or thought of in the same way. It's often referred to as the backbone of beer or the platform a beer is built on. And to me, it's much more than that. It's about flavour. It's interesting when you think of beer as a product produced in a factory rather than something that is agricultural because so much of what we eat and drink is easy to tie back to the land, especially in terms of the vegetables or animals that we consume. One product that's a little bit similar to craft beer that has successfully tied itself back to its agriculture is speciality coffee. Now, when you buy a bag of really nice coffee beans from a local roaster, it'll often have tasting notes and it'll tell you the variety of coffee that it is. But if you read closer, it often tells you where the farm is, what country it's from, who grew it. Now, with beer, you don't see any of that information, really. And for me, and what I've learned from Chris, who, interestingly enough, used to work in speciality coffee before he opened his malt house is that this information helps form a deeper connection between the drinker and the beer in their glass. Now, I appreciate that not everyone is that bothered where the farm, the barley or hops came from in their beer. But I tell you what, I am. And I think there's a story there and something more relevant, especially as we think about agricultural systems and how they impact what we eat and what we drink. I think it's really important to have that information to hand. And if you're a brewer listening to this, why aren't you expressing that provenance to your customers if you're trying to get them to engage with your beers? Are you engaging with your farmers? I think this is crucial to keep beer relevant and interesting. And we talk a lot about that in this interview. For now, let's get straight into it. This is Chris Schooley of Troubadour Maltings in Fort Collins, Colorado. Enjoy. Enjoy. 
Welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast. I'm sat here with Chris Schooley, the co-founder and owner of Troubadour Maltings here in Fort Collins, Colorado. How are you, Chris? I'm doing fantastic, Matthew. This is this is so great to see you. It's great to be here yeah, on, yeah. on this couch in the office after it's been two years since I've been been here. Um, and we're drinking. We should say what we're drinking before we continue. Yeah, this is a alt beer. From uh, Barrels and Bottles. Mm -hmm. They're up in Golden, Colorado. Okay. They have a tap room just up the block from Coors. Um, and they have a new one um, just down 70 aways, uh, what they call at Camp George. Mm -hmm. um, kind of right on the border of Arvada there, yeah. kind of mixed Golden Arvada. Um, and Mitch Livell is the head brewer there. Um, good friend. He brewed one of our first recipes ever while he was brewing at our mutual friend brewing he brewed an english mild um that uh we called uh blame it on kane mm. after the costello song and so he's he's a great beautiful man and he brews great beautiful beers so we're cheers cheers i'm glad to share this with you oh i don't drink a lot of alt beer but that is that is delicious it has something we'll talk about about your malt that is, has the sweetness. The sweetness. Uh, you, should, you should trademark that. Before we get into talking about Troubadour, and I'd like to talk today about farming and the supply chain and beer's connection to agriculture, which is one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the show. Something I'm asking guests to do now is it's been a difficult two years, so I just want to check in with everyone. So how have the, the last two years been for you and for Troubadour Maltings? It's been, it's been really, you know, it's been wild. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, you know, it is incredible to watch the world stop in so many ways. Um, while at the same time, even though we had an initial slowdown as people kind of reacted and figured out what was going on and pivoted and, and whatnot, but a lot of the brewers um, and distillers that we were already working with were able to get back into production at a pretty normal rate. Um, normal rate? I mean, normal. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know what that means, but <laughs> but at a at a decent rate. You know, a lot of them had already invested in packaging or had already kind of explored those pathways before COVID came around, doing doing the canning and and whatnot, and more distribution in that way. So we actually were fairly busy through most of the shutdown, just moving moving uh, grain around, moving malt around. We were, you know, as maybe you, you are aware or not, but um, ag and ag processors were deemed, you know, essential personnel pretty early on just because of food supply chains. Okay. So, you know, beer and spirits are pretty lucky that they get to be, you know, lumped into that. But, you know, kind of speaking to your theme for the day, that's just another one of those areas where, you know, your supply chain and what you how you engage with that is 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 crucial. So we we stayed pretty busy and at the same time we were um, undergoing a pretty significant expansion. We um, left we um, demolished our original uh, malt house, um, which was kind of sad to see go. You know, um, that was a concrete salad in box style malt house. So that must have been. Did, but that must have been quite cathartic to like knock through that. Oh yeah, <laughs> it was. It was very cathartic, um, and you know, heartbreaking in all the all the great ways. Knowing where we were going with it um, subsequently, but 
the amount of time and 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 dreams <laughs> that went into that box it was it's you know it, it's definitely incredible um but we were upgrading to two new boxes fully self-contained boxes um that our artist friend trace o'connor molotov metalworks who rents out part of our uh, warehouse space for his workshop he built those right here in house he's primarily a sculptor um you know mostly mostly metal does a lot of woodwork and and otherwise just very handy and very good to have a, a welder you know close by but um we originally designed the boxes looking at shipping containers and whatnot um but kind of saw some limitations with that and so instead just started from scratch and he built these big beautiful solid boxes and as a sculptor i um, you know, and an artist primarily, I always like the joke that these are his uh, his Rothkos, you know, his, <laughs> his big color blocks, his solid color blocks, um, and they're they're good kind of ruddy um, primer color too. So it, it it ties in with the theme. Um, but we made beyond just expanding our capacity, we were able to pour a lot of our customization and a lot of the things that we just learned from our first very very manual system. Um, we were able to incorporate those into a system with a lot more control and a lot more measurement, um, and also simplify our processes in general, eliminating a secondary steeping tank or or process and, and incorporating the steeping into the box itself, which has just given us so much more control over that steeping process with a shallower grain bed and more oxygen um, uh, accessibility and just full-time measurement at all times um, it just really allows us to dial in our process so so well and so acutely so that's fantastic and before we dig into the origin story of Troubadour and how you came to open a malt house here in Fort Collins tell me what is craft malt craft malt you know and maybe I'll get a, a you know some stones thrown at me for not knowing the definition on the website for the Maltsters Guild. I'm more interested in your <clears throat> definition anyway than the official guild definition. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, power to the guild by all means. But I, for me, craft malt is really defined by, you know, the, the closing of that supply chain. And not necessarily the closing, but making it a, a continual loop. You know that everybody within that supply chain is talking together. That's that's first and foremost. Is that it's an active and engaged supply chain um, where breeders, growers, and maltsters are all, and brewers and distillers are all interacting around. You know, malt quality and and how to drive malt quality, and also, you know, malt, um, you know, difference and and uniqueness, not just driving quality to make one specific malt and some defined, um, you know, fixed static point in the sand, line in the sand, as that's what malt is, but also kind of veering off and and making it new things, you know, or looking at old things and bringing that to the fore too. Um, I think, you know, craft malt is is different Mm. and craft malt is, you know, transparent um, and craft malt is craft malt is uh, opportunity and um, just a, the raw seed, you know, the the raw idea. Absolutely. So 
tell me, how did you come to found Troubadour Maltings? What you set it up with a guy called Steve Clark. Um, how many years ago now? Now, so we incorporated in 2013 um, and started, you know, looking for space and looking for equipment and so, and all looking for growers and looking for seed and all that stuff. We started production in 2014 or build out in 14. Mm-hmm. And then so we're entering into our um, our seventh year of, of production. How did you and Steve meet? So my uh, wife is a teacher here in, in Fort Collins, and Steve's sister-in-law was my wife's um, co-teacher. They both taught fifth grade together here at Olander Elementary in, in Fort Collins, Colorado. And so I met Steve through, through them, getting our families together and mutual friends. And um, on top of that, we had uh, my older daughter, Amelia, is the same age and the same grade as Steve's eldest child, um, Ellie. And so they were in kindergarten class. They knew each other, obviously, from social um, get-togethers and whatnot, but they were in kindergarten class together. And so they would have playdates and and whatnot, and so Steve and I would get together and talk, and mostly we talked about basketball, and we both have a passion for for professional basketball. Um, But Steve comes from a a chemistry background and pharmaceutical production um, and was an avid home brewer. And my background was in specialty coffee. I did uh, roasting, primarily roasting and importing in specialty coffee for, you know, nearly 20 years working, you know, for a number of large known roasters, um, as well as working with the Roasters Guild and uh, Specialty Coffee Association, um, writing and teaching classes on roasting and and sensory uh, science, as well as doing uh, sensory experience coordination for the Specialty Coffee Association. Um, I designed, you know, coffee services for TED Talks and all kinds of different um, kind of big conferences like that. Not just the coffee services, but I would set up these kind of sensory um, experiences where we'd come in and taste different things or different preparations or exotic fruits or just kind of really starting conversations around um, flavor, um, as well as a lot of just community development and whatnot. And through a lot of that work, um, you know, collaborating with other businesses, you know, for most of my professional life, I just always had that kind of drive to um, be a kind of business that helped other businesses. I, it's, it always kind of reminded me as supporting my other friends who played music, you know, or like when I played music as well, like getting organizing a show and getting people together and, and you know, getting the other bands on the bill and, and spreading it out that way or just showing up to your friend's show and whatnot. I always kind of like approaching business in that same way. Um, so I always loved wholesaling <clears throat> and and working with that community development kind of aspect through doing all of that, you know, I started really looking beyond just coffee, you know, because in every industry, you just kind of enter into this echo chamber where you're all kind of just agreeing with each other on what's really important and what we need to focus on and whatnot. And you really need to break out of that as quickly as you can and, and try to get some other perspective. And that was part of the thing I was, I started you know, doing a lot of collaborations in this community um, development and sensory experience kind of um, realm that I was working in in the association started reaching out to a lot of brewers and uh, craft in craft beer. And so much of the dialogue um, that I was having with brewers was the exact same thing that we were talking about in coffee. You know, I think 
in looking at at brewers, I always thought that craft beer was more accessible than specialty coffee was to the consumer. And so I kind of wanted to work with craft beer to better understand that and bring some of that to specialty coffee. And then what I really saw that that craft beer could take from specialty coffee was its engagement with its supply chain and just, you know, better better knowing um, what were the impacts and quality all along your supply chain, but also understanding all the economics behind it and and what were the impacts on quality all throughout there. And that's something that Specialty Coffee in the last 30 years has really drilled down on. Um, not necessarily fixed. It's still an ongoing um, concern. But, you know, making sure that growers are making, you know, livable and sustainable wages for that work. Um, but working closely with them to better understand how to ensure quality and to bring something really special all the way through all of its processes. Um, you know, so now you can walk into a cafe in the middle of America and pick up a pound of coffee off a shelf and it will say the name of the farm and the elevation and the variety and how it was processed and all these particulars. And that's not something that really existed 30 years ago in the same kind of context. But craft beer and specialty coffee are so similar on so many fronts, you know, just one being that kind of everyday approachable, every person kind of beverage um, for the common person, you know, not this unattainable um, kind of kind of product that's that's out of reach for most people. Like the best examples of craft beer, especially coffee, are still fairly attainable to, to just about everybody. And I think that's a commonality that people share. But looking at craft beer, where there was a lot of, you know, interest and information out there around hops, because it was something that was so um, potent and noticeable. And that's one of the key parts of craft, again, going back to that definition, is just a noticeable, tasteable difference. You know, hops really delivered that. But when I start, when I was talking to brewers about malt, um, most brewers had no idea where their malt was grown, uh-huh. you know, specifically, or what the variety was, or how it was processed, and maybe had a passing understanding of what malting even was in the first place. Uh-huh. So, it was that kind of kernel where I saw there is this possibility to better understand that and invest in that and put time into that um, to bring that to the craft craft brewing world and craft distilling world um, so that there was a more, you know, not just expanded understanding of what malt was, but better understanding of what we could do with malt to make it even more. It's interesting to me the way you reference coffee and as someone who enjoys and buys a lot of specialty coffee it is true that you can pick up those products and it tells you where it's grown who the farmer is that that it connects the the buyer the the, the person who drinks the coffee to to that farm and that process you know the process and in brewing i have seen that in some instances with hops the way i think beer and brewing talks about hops is is different to malt because hops are the sort of predominant flavor in a lot of beers. They're very fashionable. One beer that springs to mind is Russian River's Row 2 Hill 56. It's specifically, you know, you order a beer that's named after the lot and the field these hops were grown in. But I don't see that with malt. So what do you think needs to, to happen in order to, to have that sort of conversation about malt in the way that you were doing with speciality coffee over the last few years? Well, I think... One of the key factors, and again, going back to the definition of craft, um, 
one of the things that I like to think about with craft and specialty coffee, something that was hammered home to us really early at the very beginning of forming the Roasters Guild in specialty coffee, is early on we had a lot of conversations around defining what what specialty coffee was meaningful in a in a in a in a sense directly to roasters and they never really totally nailed that down um they wanted to have a kind of more open broader market but one of the things we talked about really early on was um you know avidly putting roast dates on bags of coffee like that really defined you as a roasters guild member as a as a true specialty coffee purveyor is that when you roasted it was written on that bag and freshness was important because that freshness really you know it's the thing that stood out and where you started really noticing nuance in something that predominantly for a long time people just thought coffee was one flavor <laughs> you know this is just coffee flavor and that it couldn't have nuance and, and complexities and, and differences and and whatnot you can't make origin important you can't make processing important you can't make variety important you can't make you know the the name of the farm important if you can't taste it or notice it you know and freshness is the key to being able to notice it and generally the the other side of the coin of freshness isn't that everything is just totally stale but rather that everything's been kind of homogenized and has been allowed to sit until it's stabilized, you know, and stabilizing is just a friendlier word for degrading to a more predictable point because we can't always, you know, the mechanisms for large industrial malt can't deliver the freshest malt possible to a small five barrel, 10 barrel brew house, you know, in the middle of the country every, every week when they need it. So there just wasn't really that mechanism in place to deliver freshness. So in, in the same way that there wasn't with specialty coffee until more small scale roasters started opening up and being able to buy, you know, higher grade raw coffees and roast them fresh and deliver them fresh in those communities. So that's really one of the main key promises of craft malt and craft maltsters opening all over the place, not just in North America, but, you know, Europe and UK and, and, and South America and, and otherwise. That freshness is such a distinguishing characteristic of noticing something subtle. You know, malt is subtle. Malt is sweet. The sweetness, you know, what we kind of call all of our malts um, when we're talking about them, um, we, that's kind of our blanket term for a malt, the sweetness. And that's sweet. Sweet things are hard to notice nuances through because you're you're trained to just taste sweetness first. So if it's sweet and sugary, you're like, okay, that's fine. That's going to do everything I need to do. And then I'll, I'll, col- I'll color the top of this with what other floral or, you know, fruity aromatics or herbal aromatics on top of it. But, you know, with fresh malt, you do have that that sweetness and that sugariness, but you have this whole other, um, you know, a whole plethora of other other flavors and nuances, you know, tied to, you know, cereal and bread, or even some floral flavors and some fruitier flavors. And de- depending what you do with that sweetness, what you do with that sugar, it can really translate in different ways. And that's something that you're really not going to notice if it's not fresh. I think one beer that springs to mind, and we've spoken about this before, Chris, 
is true down in Denver do a pilsner using um, we need to get into how you you name your malts really because you don't call them pilsner malts or Munich malts you you, you know you're troubadour and they're all they all have uh, musical themes but um, you you make a pilsner style malt called Pevich mm-hmm. uh, and true use it in their beer cold their Keller Lager and that has that pronounced sweetness but a flavour profile you bring up is that white grape note yeah and it's really interesting because we spoke about that and i i always <clears throat> thought of it as a biscuity sweet flavor and then i drank it on this stay and i'm like hell yeah this tastes like white grape you you put that in my in my cognitive thought and then it was there right in front of me what's the importance of, of manifesting those kind of flavors and then helping beer drinkers understand them Exactly. So, you know, that, that beer in particular, True's Cold, Keller Pills, um, you know, we, Zach is one of those dream brewers, dream collaborators, because um, we've worked on a lot of things, not just um, beer together, um, but uh, just has that really inquisitive mind and really wants to take some, has a vision and wants to go somewhere with it and, and expand on something with it. So Puvich is really a, a malt that we worked on around some of their needs and i think you know not just that white grape flavor but there's i get a slight kind of almost violet floral in the in the finish of that beer as well that i really love that i think balances so well with the mild you know minerality of a of a keller pills like that um but i think you kind of hit the nail on the head um just in you we had a conversation about it i told you what our aim was with it and that you know to belabor a pun planted the seed um of of thinking about it more and so that is that is the key is if you're not talking about it nobody's going to think about it so you know engaging around sensory engaging around what malt should and can and might taste like is crucial to getting brewers thinking about malts is crucial to getting consumers thinking about malts in a different way it's this it's the exact same thing with um with the hops and giving them exotic names and tying something to it you know it's it smells different and initially it's just different to somebody but then they're saying oh this is different what is this oh it's you know rewaka hop oh rewaka hop what's that like oh maybe you get a little bit of lime zest maybe you get a little bit of passion fruit next thing you know every time i see rewaka I'm looking for lime zest and passion fruit, you know? And so you've, you've now engaged with people in this sensory experience. And so like with a lot of our roasted malts and that, that fresh, the the freshness from that roasted malt and getting more complexity from one ingredient rather than filling uh, a grain bill for a porter or a stout with a bunch of other ingredients just to cover up acrid or burnt notes. You can get that color without just turning it into charcoal, but you can have a lot more nuance in that one ingredient. And then, you know, talking about that that chocolate or that fudginess or that cocoa, um, people now drink that beer not thinking about bitter stouts or porters now they're thinking about fresh roast and what does fresh roast taste like and and chocolate not because it's a pastry stout but because there's chocolate flavors in just the grain that's that's provided but that naming and giving it a name is so so crucial and that was something that we really came to right out of the gate is we didn't want to just make base two row pale malt um, because, you know, like I've said before, it just sounds like clown makeup. It doesn't sound like <laughs> anything 
exotic that somebody I like that term. <laughs> wants to get ex- you know excited about. Um, but we also understood that there weren't really rules about those styles. There was just familiarity. So we knew that if we made something that you know was close to that, but a little bit different, and named it something different. You know, yes, it's an uphill battle at first because the brewers are like, Peevich, I don't know how to use a Peevich. I don't know how to use a ballad malt. I don't know how to use a serenade malt. But that means they're going to ask us how to use it and what's the purpose of it. And now we've, we've achieved that first goal, first part of my definition for craft malt, right? Which is, is that engagement. So just by giving it an exotic name, we, we latch into engagement. And then that that name, Pivich, is something that sticks in their mind, and then we can talk about, yeah, so Pivich has this white grape quality, this white grape quality to its sweetness, as well as maybe a little bit of a violet uh, floral edge, but still finishes with just a slight amount of that grassiness that's familiar in a Pilsner beer. So you can still use it in a Pilsner beer. And now that brewer is building a recipe around those sensory notes, and then even promoting that beer around those sensory notes. So the consumer can now taste it and be like, oh, yeah, I, I get some white grape in there, you know, along with the way it interacts with the hop. And that's the great thing about beer in, in that regard is that it is multiple ingredients. You know, it, it is an interaction. So from a sensory experience, you have you have something to bounce it off to, which is like lesson number one in teaching people how to taste is you put two things together and you and you try to differentiate the two different tastes together, you know? So you get to start off from that, that point where it's like this hop character, this Rewaka, you know, um, lime zest and, and kiwi or, or passion fruit with the white grape of peevich and how those come together. Now it's, now it's a symphony, you know, now it's, there's so much more going on and it's really exciting. And, and you've in fully engaged the consumer in a sensory experience, but also in that, you know, desire to search back along those lines and figure out where those flavors came from and not just looking at the can or the board or whatever for the name of the hop, but the name of the, of the malt as well. And now you have, you have these two fun names that now you're going around looking for them otherwise. I feel like that's something the hop industry has understood for years. You know, you call a hop citra, you're literally telling people this is going to taste like citrus fruit. <laughs> and, and, and malt has just been like, well, we're just providing brewers with a base. You know, they want a certain amount of extract, but you're actually offering brewers uh, flavor. And, and that gives, you know, coming back to what you said about speciality coffee, you can immediately have a conversation about that flavor and where that comes from. It completely changes the game. Oh, to use your term again, planting the seed, though, something. one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on the podcast, Chris, is when we first met in, I think it was 2015, it might have been a bit earlier, but uh, in those early days of Troubadour, because you met my dad, Frank, um, at the yeah. sadly closed Pateros Creek Brewing. But we, our first conversations were about the importance of connecting beer to its agriculture. And when I wrote my book, Modern British Beer, it was kind of one of the core ideas, like... I really want to get people who read this and enjoy drinking beer to realize that when they drive past a farm full of barley, that could, they could be drinking that in a, in a year's time. And I, there's a disassociation for me there. So what's the importance of helping drinkers connect to their agriculture? And what's the maltster's role in that? Uh, I mean, it's everything in, in so many words. You know, I feel like 
if we're out there promoting this specialty, you know, craft beverage, we can't have craft without special ingredients. You know, if you're just if you're just using the generic whatever is available, then that's all you're going to be able to make. You can't weave gold out of straw, you know. And that's not saying that you know, ingredients that aren't troubadour ingredients aren't aren't wonderful, but it's 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 only how much you engage with it. <laughs> you know, like um your the the amount of attention you pay to any one of your ingredients is exactly how much you're ever going to be able to manifest its its potential right and so you know off from step 1 just just making it special for the person you're making it for there has to be those layers of of you know connectivity to it to to knowing that it came from somewhere you know knowing where that came from you know, makes you less passive to what you're experiencing in the first place. And then as a maker, knowing where the thing came from gives you so much more, you know, just material to work with, not just in your marketing or the way you present it, but literally the way you work with it, understanding, you know, oh, you know, barleys, these type of barleys in this area tend to have higher protein, um, so the malt house might handle it this way to help break that down a little further, but also those proteins can provide a lot of flavor and other nuance and characteristic um, that I can draw out of it. So instead of trying to fit this square peg in a round hole, I can build a, a square a square hole for it, you know, and everything fits together beautifully, and it's and it's and it means something. But from a you know from an economical standpoint, if you want to look at it that way. Um, you know, if you're small businesses um, spending this money internationally or even, you know, outside of your immediate vicinity, if you're pivoting and starting to spend some of that money in your immediate community, you know, if one of our definitions of craft is that it's, you know, local to some extent, you know, depending on how you define what local means. But if you're, you know, literally spending that money in your county, then it's a complete economic paradigm shift in terms of where of how that cycle pulls through and then you know specifically in northern colorado and i i mean it's not just here but i can speak to northern colorado you know we have a lot of debates around water usage um we're we're under rapid expansion and growth in all of our communities small towns that when i grew up were two blocks wide and a mile long are now you know, enormous and continuing to expand. And where are they expanding? They're expanding on viable farmland, you know, because it's more valuable as a as a development, putting up cookie cutter houses rather than producing food and raw materials for other industry <laughs> around it. And that's, you know, that's dangerous just in and of itself as a statement. If you take a step back from that and you're like, oh, we're not producing food or raw materials anymore. We're putting up houses that are now using resources rather than developing resources. But um, what I was going to get at is just that water usage. You know, people in brewing are, of course, very protective of Colorado water sources and want to make sure that we're using them sustainably um, and and responsibly and and tracing things and, and its usage. And generally, the other side of 
their debate around usage is pointing the finger at local agriculture, saying, hey, local agriculture, you're using too much water. You need to change the way you're using water. Whereas those brewing businesses, as you know, we've discussed many times, are agricultural businesses. So agriculture should not be their enemy, should not be at the other side of their debate. You know, and if you are buying locally produced malts grown in your area, in your county or around your city, then you're no longer having a, a, a two-way, you know, combative conversation around water usage. You're now having a productive, interactive conversation about water usage because you both need it for the same purpose. You know, it's a hell of a thing to tell growers in your own county that they use too much water, but then don't care about, you know, the growers who are growing your barley if you're getting them from elsewhere, how they're using water. You know, like, if you're going to pay attention, you need to pay attention. You know, it's... It's, it's the same with everything is don't just scratch the surface and be performative about it. Like actually find out what what's the issue here and how can we truly be proactive? And if I want to be an active participant in using water better then all the people who are using that water, if we have a shared purpose, then we can have a much more proactive conversation about that. One thing I'm interested in talking about is how you came to use the variety of barley you use because something that was fascinating to me is when you started the malt house you couldn't just buy in any sort of barley why why is that well most barley varieties have been bred i i I won't say most necessarily because um but generally there's been an economic interest in that in that breeding right that 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 barley variety has been bred for a specific person it's about or yield. purpose yes. yield and margin yeah yield and margin but then also whoever has funded that breeding now owns that intellectual property of the genetics of that barley and so say ab imbev has a whole breeding program around barleys that it's going to use for its various beers um if you're growing a, one of those varieties, that variety can only be used for AB InBev. And the same is true for cores. Those cores barley varieties have been driven by their own in-house um, uh, systems. And so if you grow, if you're growing that cores barley, it has to be used for cores. If they reject that barley for any reason, um, no other malt house can come by and grab it and use it and malt it and sell it for beer. And that's because of intellectual <clears throat> property? Exactly. Mm. So that's copyrights and intellectual property. So that was out of the gate. It was really hard for us to find, you know, a variety that was public domain. Um, and so, you know, that's layer one in terms of the challenges of finding variety. Like, really, some of our primary concerns were finding a barley variety that was going to produce really well here in northern Colorado um, and under these specific um, conditions, you know, low water usage, um, low in, try, try to use as few inputs as possible, um, a barley that would grow well within a, a cycle of the other crops that are growing here. You know, generally in northern Colorado, we cycle through corn and then into beets, um, which then re-nitrate nitrogenate the soil and then you might use a barley or a wheat to fix the nitrogen and then you would follow that with corn again so truly in northern colorado a lot of the farming practices are nearly regenerative just in the nature of how they how they work in those rotations so we wanted to find a barley that was going to work within that rotation really well um 
But it's not like you can just open the phone book and, and say, "Hey, who's who has barley varieties just up for up for grabs?" And you you uh, quite serendipitously found that variety yeah. of barley, um, which is how I met you because it was via meeting my dad. Yeah, in at Pateras Creek Brewery, and you use Genie uh, barley uh, yeah. LCS Genie. Yeah, um, and so what benefits is using that barley been to to Troubadour? It's been it's been massive. I mean, we really lucked into it. So much of our whole story has been so serendipitous in terms of just uh, how Steve and I met. And then, you know, I had, I, you know, kind of went off on a tangent earlier when I was telling that story, but we were having beers at one point and um, I had had this idea about a malt house after a, after a coffee um, event I was at. And I was thinking about roasting fresh malts and, and, and getting into malting and whatnot. And knowing that Steve was a home brewer, I asked him about it and, he got really excited and he pulled out a, a business plan that he had been working on for a malt house that exact same time. So that was serendipitous in terms of just our minds linking together at the same time. Right around the same time, your dad um, had introduced, well, had been, um, well, Lima Grain Cereal Seeds had opened an office here in Northern Colorado not that long ago. And primarily in Northern Colorado, they were focused on wheat. Um, and had been working closely with Colorado Wheat Growers Association on their Plains Gold project, which we also benefited from on with the wheat variety that we use that I can talk about later. But um, your dad, you know, was a huge game changer in terms of saying, hey, look at all this craft beer here in not just Colorado, but in the in the states. And <clears throat> That nobody's paying attention to their barley. <laughs> nobody's paying attention to the malting. It this would be a great market to introduce some really special, interesting, um, you know, more character-driven barleys. And so they had this genie variety that had actually been bred in the UK as a, um, a, a barley for distilling primarily, but its protein um, profile didn't quite meet what they wanted it to there. Um, they didn't like it in the UK. They didn't like it. No. no. But also, I think the growing conditions might have had something to do with that as well. Right. It wasn't totally suited for, for there. But looking at its its, its specifications, um, Frank saw that there was opportunity. Like it, it actually seemed like it would respond really well here in this particular climate. Um, and so they had done some um, – they had grown – a a certain amount up in Idaho for seed purposes specifically. Um, but none of that crop had been watered properly. You know, it wasn't, um, really taken care of that well, but it was good for seed. And we got some of that and planted here with five different growers, um, throughout Weld County and Larimer County. And, um, man, goddamn, that genie just loved Colorado. You know, it just, it yielded like nothing any of the barley growers had seen here before. You know, water and and um, fertilizer and whatnot, it was very low. Um, and and quality-wise, I mean, it was super plump. It met all the spec, um, and it just malted like a dream. Like, right out of the gate, we were getting these awesome, you know, enzymatic numbers, great extracts. And I mean, we were literally just watching grass grow. It felt like, like, you know, we were paying attention to it and it was, you know, and that's really the key. And another definition of craft is just paying attention. Right. But, um, man, it, it did so much and it just, it really stood out. And in the subsequent years, since we started working with Jeannie, you know, it's, it's, 
it's produced really um really evenly you know even in some harder years we've gotten fairly solid production from it in the field um but performance wise flavor and nuance wise you know it genie has consistently won um you know gold silver and bronze at malt cup you know there's hardly there's maybe one or two other varieties in the three years that they've that the maltsters guild had the malt cup and you've won some medals as well yeah we've gotten some too but like (laughs) gene like the other people who have won medals have been growing genie you know predominantly so and and when you look there's you know uh harmony who is now running the lab up at, at hartwick university um she the research that she did on uh, variety and flavor differences within variety and whatnot, Genie just constant, consistently sits right in the pocket for what everybody's looking at. So we really completely lucked into Genie. Um, it's been a it's been a success story by all means. You know, not just for um, the brewers and for us in the malt house, but definitely for the growers. It's a it's an awesome barley. It outperformed any of the barleys that they were growing for brewing purposes beforehand, and that's that's really significant because, like I said earlier, it's a it's a really important part of their rotation if you want to practice that more um, regenerative style kind of crop rotation. So, you know, being able to be a part of that and have it not just be, you know, that's that's the risk that we're asking those growers to take specifically in that first year is we're, we're going to bring the variety to you. You're not going to grow something you knew already. So taking a risk with us in that regard, you know, paying a premium for that risk, but also paying a premium for the relationship that we're going to have and the fact that we're going to stay engaged in this process and, and collect this data and understand how this is growing and performing um, from year to year. Uh, it's, you know, it's been something that's been huge on that agricultural side. And that's really crucial to us because from day one, you know, our goal has been not just to deliver something new to the marketplace of the brewer and the distiller and the, that consumer, but deliver something new to the marketplaces of the of the contract grower here. And that's a key part of this, this story is a lot of people, you know, and I would I would imagine internationally, a lot of um, a lot of folks. Um, you know, maybe it's completely unfair of me to to assume this, but but I know that a lot of Americans assume this, and that's that farmers are now just big industrial corporations. You know that it's just this big factory farm because they've seen all the specials on Netflix. You know, it's all Monsanto and Conagra. But the fact of the matter is, you know, in this part of the country, at least, and and throughout a lot of the country, the growers themselves are small independent businesses, just like Troubadour is, just like, you know, Horse and Dragon is, just like True is, you know, just like the people that we're serving, those are also small independent businesses. It's not mm-hmm. just some big agribusiness. It's they're small contractors who are, if you can offer a better contract and a better relationship, you know, every business is going to jump at that opportunity. I think that's a really important point because people are gradually becoming more and more aware of industrialized agriculture and people want to buy craft beer but they don't look at the supply chain and if you look at this you know the scale of farming in yakima and the scale of of barley breeding and farming over the world it's you know it's it's a huge industrial process and so do you think there's an opportunity with craft malt to to help people understand that and maybe connect more brewers and, and producers to you know if they want to make craft beer how do they make sure that 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 it's craft on every point of the supply chain how do we do that yeah no i think it's fair to ask and i i think that you know 
I'm hopeful <laughs> that, that 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 you know I've certainly invested in it and mortgaged my house against that that uh, that uh, gamble. But um, but I think that you know when we opened our doors, there were just a handful of craft maltsters throughout the country. Um, not to mention there's only a handful of large malting companies too. You know, like all these businesses were buying from just a a couple people. Um, but now there's 70 plus craft maltsters in North America, which is which is huge. And here in in Colorado, we have a number of other craft maltsters. Twyla, who started along with us up at, at Grouse, um, doing all gluten free malting. The the Cody family down south, a Colorado malting company who've been doing it for 12, 13 years now, um, and they've been great supportive people. Obviously, Root Shoot just down um, between Bertha and Loveland. Um, Leopold Brothers and their maltings. Um, and I think one of the key things has been that us in craft malting have realized how important it is. We're serving a community that is very community-minded, that is very collaboratively-minded. Um, and so whereas the history of agribusiness, you know, agricultural business, generally is pretty tight-fisted is is the world of intellectual property like genetic intellectual property that's a pretty hardcore world mm-hmm. you know the, the world of genetic intellectual property um so it's not necessarily traditionally been the friendliest most community minded um business but i think that craft malt has really pushed forward in the world of you know cereal seed production in trying to mirror and reflect the communities that we're serving um and bringing people more closely together you know like we we've you know shared and talked collaborations and done active collaborations with a number of the different malt houses here throughout colorado and you know if you're the one the one craft malt house in some area going to um going to these breweries and distilleries and asking them to pay a lot more than they are and and for why you know it's a it's much more of an uphill battle but if you have a number of places now that are offering something different um at this different price then it it starts to normalize it a little bit um and the fact of the matter is is that most of the brewers and distillers we work with work with other colorado craft maltsters not just with us it's not exclusive and so that's also a testament and a proof of concept that we're all offering something different, which is the, the true caveat. We're not all just making the same widget that you can use in the exact same way. We're all bringing something unique and different to the table. And that's, that's the true promise. And that's what really gets back to what you were, what you were asking there in terms of can we hope that um, there is more of this opportunity for engagement and investment and and um, breaking it down. I, and I think it's crucial that there is because um, I think that there's some of what's happening now within craft malt that impacts, you know, the, the large malt houses in terms of saying, hey, these customers value this information. These customers value freshness in these particular ingredients or these customers value full transparency in these particular things and they're able to also deliver that so it's now changes that whole nature of the malt supply chain from top to bottom i mean in a really positive way of saying like hey the consumer values this we should we should also invest in delivering you know delivering this and they're they're equipped to so Uh 
One thing I want to pick up on is this year, the barley harvest, the news has not been good for the US. I think the UK has had a, a positive uh, growing season with good yields, but that's not uh, the case in the US. You had the heat dome, um, which has caused massive problems in agriculture uh, for the US. How does um, problems way up the supply chain affect a small uh, maltster like yourself? Well, you're seeing stories now more regularly um, on, a, on a pretty regular basis in terms of how that's going to affect the price for craft beer coming down the pike. You know, it's it's not that far down. And, it you know, years ago when we started, this was a lot of what I was talking about was trying to tell people, hey, I'm not trying to be chicken little. I'm not trying to say the sky is falling. But if you're not paying attention to this, things are going to get complicated. You know, if you're working with agriculture or a commodity or anything like that, to not understand the history of the volatility of the market, first of all, just from an economic perspective, you're really hanging yourself out the dry. But then if you're not understanding that, oh, these other climate impacts might also impact my ability to get what I need <laughs> um, production-wise, that's also going to, you know, really put you in, a, in an awkward position. So from day one, part of our mission has been you need to engage, you need to better understand this. For us personally, we actually had a pretty great barley production year. You know, we, we knowing that we were going into a challenging year based on what everything was saying, we were pretty conservative with what we planted. We already had a fairly decent surplus from the um, year prior. <clears throat> so we didn't necessarily need to plant that much this year. And so we knew since it was going to be challenging, we weren't going to. But then we got rain all through um, all through May <laughs> into June, right when you want it, when everything's sprouting and super thirsty. And then it dried up at the beginning of July right when you want your fields to start curing and drying up so that you can harvest them by the end of July, beginning of August. So definitely by the end of July, the heat was pretty severe and there's some stress put on barley at that point, but we fared a lot better than a lot of, a lot of other places went. So we just ended up having lower yields due to um, not planting as much, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but our, our yields matched pretty well with what we had seen. Otherwise we did have one of our fields. Um, somebody was putting in some equipment and, and trampled over like an acre of it. So that was kind of, that was kind of rough. But, um, other than that, we were spared, you know, extreme weather, um, hail that we've seen the last couple of years around that time of year, um, which was what we were really crossing our fingers for. Um, but we haven't, you know, analysis on that barley looked looked pretty good, but we know that it's impacted everybody else. And now you are seeing, you know, the large malt producers talking about, hey, barley yield wasn't great and prices might need to come up. On top of that, we have a shipping crisis, <laughs> you know, internationally where, you know, we have ship after ship in every port in the United States backed up. And it's almost impossible to get the imported malts that um, brewers really expected for so long, which has also driven those prices up. So now all of a sudden, hey, you should have been paying attention to your supply chain. It's become pretty resident, um, resonant. Um, but I don't, you know, I don't mean to sound scolding or anything at all, but rather I want to hit the point home that 
you 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 can't afford to not pay attention. You can't afford to not think about craft beer and craft spirits as an agricultural product. You have to know where those things are coming from and you have to know what challenges you might face. If you're already so many of these businesses are running on a zero margin, you know, a uh, uh, process to begin with, all of a sudden they can't get what they were always, always getting without thinking about it. It it's going to throw a monkey wrench in things. It's interesting you mentioned shipping being backed up because you know a lot of American craft beer was built on the back of British malt. You know, yeah, Golden Promise, Maris Otter. That that for, for, until the last few years when craft malt came along, that that was um, you know look at uh, Russian River. Vinnie Silurzo uses Simpson's right. Golden Promise to brew his beers. You know, they, that's a difficult thing to, to move on from. But what I'm interested in with these challenges with, with growing uh, and with the weather, how do you plan, uh, you know, with an agricultural product for the next few years, assuming that these problems like heat domes, like hail, they're going to keep happening? Do you have a plan in place for, for what you do in the event of a bad harvest? Well, part of it is... You know, building up your your surplus to to what you can. Part of it is, you know, we always try to diversify our fields around. Um, you know, it's likely that we'll need to plant in more um, heavily irrigated or more accessibility to regular irrigation with some of these coming years, which means we have to pay, again, closer attention to our water uses in general and look at what the reservoirs are, are looking at and whatnot. You know, we, we speak to our growers, you know, on a regular, you know, every, we see them almost every week at this point with, with deliveries and kind of, you know, not just projecting against some of those climactic impacts, but like I was saying earlier, you know, they have people at their door every day looking at mineral rights, water rights, and wanting to build on their property. So, you know, our our Greg Walker, who grows most of our barley currently, um, you know, he's he farms around two. He has about two hundred acres himself, and then you know farms on some other property around that uh, that that rented property around there. So he can secure his land, but the stuff that he's some of the other rotating um, parcels are now up for contention for development, you know, in any minute. So it's not just those plans for environmental impacts, but plans for the, the greater encroachment of, of population increase. So, you know, it's as far as we don't have the perfect, you know, we don't have the perfect plan for what we're going to do with this. This is an active kind of conversation we've been having. We've been talking about, you know, do we need to pursue some of our own land you know, that we can then um, hire and contract out for growing just to ensure that we always have some access to some land. But that also means that we have to find land that has that access to water in the first place, which is also very contentious. So, you know, this can't just be a little cottage industry kind of, you know, um, uh, hobby <laughs> kind of thing. There's there's long-term um, impacts that we have to look at as we grow and as we increase our production. You know, and that's something that we've talked a lot about in terms of just how we how we continue to grow and and when we grow. Um, you know, we we'd like to continue to expand from this point, but we also realize that there's a point that you know, if we were to continue from that that point, we're now a completely different business than we set out to be. Not just because we're now larger, but because everything that we're trying to do 
with closing that that gap and that supply chain then puts us in a position where we have to spread that out a lot further you know so let's bring this back around to something a bit more positive because things have been going well here at Troubadour you've expanded production quite significantly threefold is that right yeah just about and one of the new additions to the malt house is and this also ties back to your experience in coffee is you have quite a, a fancy roasting machine um what what benefit is the new roaster bringing to the brewery well that's huge in terms to of the, to the malt house yeah, sorry yeah. not the no, brewery no. <laughs> i was gonna bust you on it um it, for one it was part of our initial business plan because that's one of the things that we wanted to bring to the market was fresh roasted malts because um, we knew that that would be the primary area where we can show that differentiation of, of freshness um and so we were using, um, I was using uh, an old uh, 60s God Hot roaster down in Boulder, um, which is, they, they've been using a lot of those God Hots in coffee roasting, um, but they are built for a cereal seed production because it's indirect fired combustion. So that's a lot safer to roast malts on. But that was rented time on somebody else's machine. That was always going to be an impact. And we weren't able to do certain things on that roaster that, that we wanted to do. Um, Bueller introduced this Zonda roaster um, a couple years back. And uh, it was kind of perfectly outfitted for the craft malt world in terms of its size. It's a 100 kilo capacity. Um, and it's, you know, um, and it's price point which that was one of the things with a lot of the malt houses is the existing roasters that were out there were twice as much money as what their malt house might be, you know, if they kind of scrapped something together like we did, <clears throat> whereas it might produce 10% of their output or whatnot. Um, so this was a great price point and great technology. It has um, full quenching capabilities, which allow us to introduce water into the roasting drum at different stages Predominantly, we use it around um, those conversion temperatures so that we can convert some of those sugars and build a little bit more sweetness in the profile for some of our malts. Um, it also uses recycled energy, so it's all indirect combustion that then convectively heats the outside of the drum. None of that air goes through the drum at all. So it heats the outside of the drum and then can circle back through the burner and be reused. So that two-stage fired burner is only firing for maybe 15% of a three-hour three hour roast. So really great energy usage. But it also allows us to trap a small amount of the moisture in the drum if we're working on Kara-style malts. So we've developed a malt style what that we call modulated to kind of follow follow along with our musical theme with names but also modulation really speaks to what we're doing in the roaster with taking an input and adding some changes to it to create something new um which is kind of how we interpreted care and crystal style malts um to begin with so we're able to really manipulate you know our moisture content and and air exposure before going into the roaster to develop maybe some tartness um as well as how much sugar we're then going to convert and then, you know, play around with the, the, the roast itself to hold it during those conversion times for longer to really get break, break down those starches and then, you know, enter into our drying and then, um, subsequent adding color to it throughout that. Um, it's really incredible, um, to be able to, you know, one of our goals out of the gate was 
or not necessarily goals, but one of our ideas was thinking we'd be able to maybe develop customized malts for for brewers um, and distillers. And with the malt houses, you know, producing five ton batches, it's a little bit much for most 10 barrel brew house brewers to be like, oh, I need, you know, 8,000 pounds of something um, in particular that I'll use in a timely matter. Whereas with the roaster, we can produce 100 kilos of something in a couple hours in a day, you know, and so we can bring brewers up and and kind of develop recipes and, um, you know, make them right there on the spot. And that really has that impact and and really helps translate that value of connecting to your supply chain in a way, especially for a small brewer who can't call up, you know, one of the larger malt houses and say, hey, what if you did this? You know, it really gives us that opportunity to do exactly that. And so we've been able to develop a a number of those modulated malts as well as some different dark roasted malts um, for a number of our customers like Cohesion in Denver, who's doing all Czech style lagers. We're doing all their malts and we've developed a couple of fun of the fun versions of those modulated malts to help them with their nail their uh, tamavi profile, which is in, in a beautiful, incredible beer. I guess freshness is another thing as well. Like, you, like you're in these small batches, brewers are able to literally pick them up and use them within a exactly. couple of days of them being ready. Yeah, we produce them to order more or less. You know, right now in this time of year with the darker malts, we're cranking out a couple extra batches a week, just knowing that it's going to get used you know right away since more dark beers are getting brewed but that is one of our goals is you know is roasting to order um and that helps just hit that that point home of freshness and and how and the thing is again with the roasted malts i i mean i feel this strongly with all of our malts but those roasted malts specifically because of what they're normally using is probably fairly stale they have no idea when it was roasted and how long it's been sitting around when they get this fresh roasted malt and it hits their mills it just fills all of their senses with, you know, this intense aroma. And that's that experience. Like as soon as you experience that, you're like, I can't ever go back to anything else because nothing else matches this. So if people are traveling to, to Colorado or to the United States, um, what are some of the beers they can try or breweries that are using Troubadour malt so they can drink it and go, Hey, I'm drinking a, a beer with Troubadour in it. Yeah. Well, some of the, some of our friends that we've mentioned, like Barrels and Bottles, our mutual friend, True, uh, Cohesion, um, uh, Bear Brewing in Denver. We've been doing a lot of cool stuff with them and Novel Strand, um, uh, Gold Spot and Call to Arms. Um, and then up here, up north, people like Timnith and Stodgy Brewing, which is a new shop. They're using all Colorado malts, um, all Colorado um, I think they might bring in a couple of hops from otherwise, but I think everything else is, is Colorado as well. Horse and Dragon, of course, Zvi, all the dark beers at, at Zvi have some of our malt in it, which is pretty super cool to us. You know, our friends McClellan's, um, you know, everybody, everybody here in town, we've done a little bit of something with. So, um, and then, you know, uh, New Belgium has been really good about including us in special beers through their wood cellar program. Um, and we've been doing a ton of beers through their cellar club, a couple like small scale one-off things, part of their thing. But with uh, New Belgium, we just put out in in September, we did a smoked uh, grapefruit beer with them. Their Paloma, um, Domin- their 
their Paloma version of their Dominga Sour Beer. That was all of our malts, and that was distributed nationally. You know, that was in every state in the United States, which is pretty super cool. You, speaking of super cool, you did something pretty different to smoke the malts. Didn't, didn't you literally smoke the malt over cactus? Yeah, so Lauren, <laughs> Lauren came to us and was like, you know, I love that we're the call that she makes when she wants to do something crazy and maybe ill-advised. But she was like, hey... I've been I've been kind of tasked. We had a we had the thought to make a grapefruit version, a Paloma version of the Dominga Sour that they make. So I want to do like a mezcal Paloma style. Um, so I'm looking for some smoked malts. Have you guys done with messed with any smoked malts yet? And we thought back to our friends at uh, Dryland Distilling in Longmont, who we make some wheat whiskeys with. Um, but they also uh, make a, a smoked uh, um, prickly pear cactus spirit that's similar to a mezcal. And so when she mentioned that to me, that they were the first people we thought of, of like, oh, like, okay, not only can we get some smoked malt for you, but we'll smoke it with some cactus. We'll talk to these guys and we'll smoke it with the cactus and see what that absorbs and brings to it. If that can bring a little bit more of that mezcal essence to the beer. And I don't know, I didn't get necessarily anything to you know agave cactusy from it but it actually did really help in the smoking process because traditionally when cold smoking malts you need to rehydrate them a little bit so they'll just be a little bit more absorbent of the smoke um but the the cactus released enough moisture that it was able to hydrate the the grain enough to to bring that smoke in and then the to take it one step further we actually smoked the cactus and the malt over grapefruit wood which citrus wood has that kind of tighter, brighter kind of smoke to it compared to like a mesquite or, or hickory or something like that. But so that and that beer was it's crazy because every sip of that beer, I think the smoke it has like a different character to it. But the malt itself, one thing I love a lot of smoked malts, when you chew them, that now that's the only thing you're going to taste for the next three days. But with this stuff, it like you chewed it and you got that puff of smoke, that bright, tight smoke. Um, but then it finished with the sweetness of the of the malt so it had the presence of the smoke but still had the sweet presence of the malt too so and i think that really showed in the beer really well so well here's to many more beers like that i think that's a lovely place to leave this yeah. uh, this conversation yes. thank you so much again chris <laughs> for your time I was so spaced on years today i don't know what was going on i was like I couldn't. I couldn't find years in my in my brain. I left that. I left that at home on the dresser. But that's okay. Yeah, it's all good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Matthew. Cheers. What a fantastic interview that was. I just really enjoy sitting with Chris and riffing about malt and about the importance of agriculture to beer. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. I think people like Chris are what keep me engaged with and excited about the importance of beer. But importance isn't the right word. I think something that Chris hits on is that barley has potential. In terms of craft malt, we are at the tip of the iceberg. I think over the next few years, we will start to see a proliferation of craft maltsters here in the UK, as well as there are in the US, just because brewers will constantly be looking for a point of difference and we have a more responsible, ethical look at the production of barley in terms of the beer we drink. 
Thanks again for listening to the show. I'll leave it there. Don't forget to hit subscribe, leave us a rating, all that usual podcast stuff as it helps people find the show. And if you really enjoy the Pellicle podcast and what we've been producing on PellicleMag.com, then please consider giving us a monthly donation via Patreon. We are about to increase the amount we pay our contributors and we really, really need your support to keep our magazine sustainable. So you can give us a donation each month or each year at patreon.com forward slash Pellicle Mag. I've been Matthew Curtis. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Pellicle Podcast. I'll be back in a few weeks time with another episode. See you then. <laughs>